You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. You're listening to the MLB.com StatCast Podcast. Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello. Joining me to my left, holding the Bob Barker mic this week, is Matt Myers, MLB.com National Editor. Matt, hello. Hello, Mike. How are you? I'm good. Hey, we've got a pretty interesting show today. We've got a guest coming up a little bit later I'm really excited about. Uh, Caleb Cotham from the Cincinnati Reds got off to a really good start this year and uh, had some interesting uh, interviews recently about the data he's trying to put into improving his curveball. So very excited to talk to him. We'll get to him in just a minute. Matt, we have to start with kind of, uh, I don't know if it's necessarily news, really, but the biggest story of the week is the Angels. You know, Garrett Richards, who is our king of curveball spin from last year, got hurt. He's out for this year and most of next year. Uh, and Geraldton Simmons got hurt. Angels are in kind of a tough spot, and everybody's like, is now the time to trade Mike Trout? And I think you can kind of go back and forth between, well, yeah, obviously it's time to blow it up, and Mike Trout is so great, there is no trade out there that could possibly go up to his greatness. Your opinion? My opinion is basically if Miguel Cabrera can get traded in his prime, if King Griffey Jr. can get traded by the Mariners in his prime, if Mike Piazza can get traded by the Dodgers in his prime, Mike Trout can get traded in his prime. And I think that where the Angels are now actually kind of reminds me a little bit of where the Rangers were 12 years ago, whatever, 2003 with Alex Rodriguez, where basically they had the best player in baseball, but a roster with a ton of holes on it and they weren't really prepared to compete with him in that window and they ended up trading him to try and sort of restart the rebuild yeah i don't think they will trade him but i think the question is if they did is it really possible to get value for him because he's he's not just a good player he's not just a great player he's probably going to be one of the best players we'll ever live to see like he's that good he's that young and his contract is still relatively reasonable for a team is there, is there a combination of players out there that would actually work without destroying the chances of the team going for him? And I know Jim Duquette wrote about this at LNB.com this week. Yeah, I think Jim did a really good job um, with that topic because I think there are, there are a few teams. Um, the team that I would start with is the Cubs for a variety of reasons, one of which is they have the talent, they have the payroll, and they have a fantastic asset. Oh, also, they're in the National League, so they'd be more likely to make a trade, the Angels would be more likely to trade in the National League. And they have a fantastic asset who has very little little value in the National League in Kyle Schwarber. So to me, that's when you think of a think of a trout trade, it starts there. Because when I think of what the Chicago Cubs need right now, it's the best player in baseball. That seems really fair. I actually, I like the idea of the Red Sox, right? If you start with Anderson Espinosa, who's I think 18 years old, a pitcher in the minors, who's really destroying everybody. Jackie Bradley Jr., Andrew Benatendi, and uh, who's the other one we were talking about? Yohan Moncada. Oh, Yohan Moncada, right. And then if you also swap Risney Castillo and Albert Pujols' contracts, that saves the Angels a ton of money, and it gets them somebody who can play the outfield. So maybe your outfield this year, not that this year would matter that much, would be Castillo, Jackie Bradley, Cole Calhoun. You've saved yourself a ton of money. You've added to your farm system. And now the Red Sox have Mike Trout next to Mookie Betts in the outfield, and that's insane. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, that's a perfect fit in, that, in, in this fanciful world, uh, particularly if you get Moncada. Because I think Moncada is the kind of player he's – Maybe the closest thing in terms of power-speed combo in the minors to Mike Trout. Uh, yes. He's an infielder, obviously, but he hits her power. He's like, you know, I think he's already got like 15 stolen bases on the year. He's a very exciting player. He's the kind of guy that would headline uh, a package 
for uh, for Trev. Yeah, it's not going to happen. Like, it's never going to happen. I, it's just so much fun to talk about. Could it happen? But it's never going to happen. Here's the one thing I know for certain. We're going to see Mike Trout playing for the Angels on June 8th when they come to New York to play the Yankees. That's going to be one of our MLB Plus broadcasts, which we've been doing, which is a, it's, it's a very StatCast-focused broadcast. Lots of cool StatCast data. It's not StatCast only. There's lots of other stuff as well, but it's really, I think, an interesting way to view the game uh, with lots of advanced data. And we've been having lots of fun with it so far. Myself and Jim Duquette and Fernando Perez and Allison Footer and a whole bunch of our friends have been on. Uh, so that's going to be the Angels here in New York in a couple weeks. And this week, it's actually Yankees and Royals on Thursday night. Uh, which you can view on MLB.com. The Royals are really interesting, obviously defending world champions, off to kind of a rough start this year. Yeah, it seems like the uh, they've been uh, hit with the old uh, regression to the mean, as they as they say. <laughs> it's the fault of the it's the <laughs> it's the projections. I know it's the projections. And I, don't, and I don't mean to sound like smug or anything because I don't I hold I actually hold no ill will towards the Royals. And the fact of the matter is, it still wouldn't shock me if they I, they're still a good team, um, and it wouldn't shock me if they turn things around and end up competing in that division. But so far, we've seen the, the sort of flaws that some of the projections might have predicted have appeared thus far. Yeah, they were a good team, obviously, last year, right? But I, I, the way I looked at it is they were a good team that had everything go right for them, right? Like, they caught all the breaks, you know? When you're going right, Carlos Correa doesn't field that ground ball cleanly in the playoffs that maybe leads to a double play that maybe changes that series. When you're going right, Eric Hosmer runs for home on a play he maybe shouldn't have, and Lucas Duda doesn't make a good throw. You know, Those are the kind of things that when you're going, when things are going your way, that's what happens. This year, it's been a little different. That starting pitching, nobody really had a lot of confidence in it, and it's actually, you know, Giordano Ventura, I think, has walked as many guys as he struck out. Uh, Chris Young has been gotten just been lit up, and now he might go on the DL with some arm issues. I found something interesting today. The Royals have the oldest pitching staff in baseball. Would you believe that? The oldest. I find that hard to believe. Now but that, I believe it. Now that's I know you ran the numbers. I did. Well, it's from Baseball Reference, it's, and it's weighted, right? So, for example, if one guy has ten innings and he's twenty, and one guy has one inning and he's thirty, that will skew very heavily towards the younger guy. So it's it's based on the amount of innings thrown, in, and it makes sense, right? Chris Young, like thirty-five years old. They have Chedman Wong, who's been around forever. They have really no one who's that young anymore pitching for them, and I'm not saying that's the reason why, but I, I found that shocking. The Royals, this team built around athleticism, have the oldest pitching staff. Yeah, and also Jordan Ventura was kind of the pitcher they've been expecting to take that leap forward. He's occasionally brilliant, but more often than not, it seems like he's the kind of guy who's a little bit erratic, labors to get through the fifth inning, you know, 100 runs up that pitch count very quickly, so... Um, it's it's been a struggle for them, and it's it's because they're asking their their bullpen to throw even more innings than usual. Wade da- Wade Davis's velocity is down a little bit. No more. It's like two almost two and a half miles a an hour. That's kind of a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> That's a big deal. But when you think of the Royals, what's the number one thing you think of? You know, it's, for me, it's outfield defense, right? Really yeah. elite outfield defense, and they're still catching the balls, no doubt about that. But would it surprise you to know that they have the second weakest outfield throwing arms this year? Um, it does surprise me because I, I sort of think, I mean, again, this is one of those things where, you know, Alex Gordon has a extremely accurate arm. Right. Um, but I, I gather it's not that strong. Yeah. And if you look around, so we measure this 79.6 miles an hour is their, their average. And that's not on all throws because nobody cares about just the random lobs back to home plate. It's the same methodology we've been using for a while where you take the 90th percentile of a player's uh, defined top effort and then kind of measure above that so they're down to the second lowest 79.6 miles an hour and i think that's interesting when you think about lorenzo kane and this would have sounded a lot better before he hit three home runs last night but 
Wunderkind just doesn't look right necessarily out there. And obviously, this is the StatCast show. We're not just going to use the eye test. We have numbers for it. And I looked this morning. His home to first times, his running times from home to first, his top time this year of 4.22 seconds would not have been in his top dozen times last year. Obviously, full season against a month. But even still, that tells you a little bit, doesn't it? I think so. I mean, it's an int- you know, it's you wouldn't want to go too far with that one data point of sort of saying like, oh, he's definitively lost a step. But it definitely, it's 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 a it's a, a red flag. A, you know, I don't know. Maybe that's too strong a term, but it's like okay, this is something to keep in mind, something to watch. Um, it's just also interesting because it's the kind of thing that Statcast allows us to measure more definitively. You know, obviously in the past we've had things like speed score that might be able to tell you a little bit, but now it's we can say definitively he is not running as fast as he did last year. Yes, and I, I think that's an issue because it kind of goes to show that. You know, he maybe has been banged up. You know, he's got a lot of uh, mileage on those legs. I don't know. I, I'm not saying I'm not going to rule him out, but go I, ahead. I, you know, I, this is this is just related to the Royals before we switch gears again because I think there's, you know, it kind of goes back to when things are going your way and and clutch and all that stuff. And I think sometimes it's 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 a very simple thing. For example, last year with runners in scoring position, they hit 281, 347, 426. This year, 237, 284, 355. And that's a, a, that's a huge in, difference. It's a huge difference. And it's not like this is sort of what we people talk about, like how clutch isn't really a skill. It doesn't necessarily mean that good players don't get hits in clutch situations. It just means that players don't change their level of play given the situation. That generally you are who you are, and that will fluctuate from year to year, particularly something like batting average, which just generally fluctuates from year to year. Right. It's all about what do you want clutch to actually define. Is Miguel Cabrera clutch because he hits well in big spots? Or is he just Miguel Cabrera and he hits well when it's, you know, Tuesday, when it's nighttime, when it's rainy, when it's sunny? He always hits well. But going back to outfield arms, so he said that they have the second weakest. I ran the numbers this morning. Who has the best collection of outfield arms in baseball so far in 2016? And I'm just talking about strong velocity, uh, throwing velocity. I know you know the answer to this because I already told you. <laughs> uh, is it the Minnesota Twins? It's the Minnesota Twins. <laughs> and more specifically, it's Miguel Sano. And uh, he actually has the second best outfield uh, arm strength this year, 95.5 miles an hour. Number one is a former twin, StatCast megastar Aaron Hicks, now with the Yankees, who popped a, a 105.5 a couple weeks ago to break a record. Uh, but, you know, Miguel Sano, he was – I don't think he'd ever played outfield in his career until this season. He's a third baseman, probably ought to be a DH. They moved him to right field, and there was a lot of trepidation about that some of which has been valid. You know, he hasn't really looked great out there, but his throwing arm has been really elite. And that that's interesting because he had Tommy John surgery a couple years ago. He missed all the 2014 season, and now he's back. And that arm has really, like, it's been impressive. And I think that's why they liked him as a third baseman too. Yeah, I'm going to drop some, like, weird meta baseball stuff okay, on Okay, I love this. Because this is one of those things that have always fascinated me about baseball is that the skill set to be good at throwing and to be good at hitting are kind of theoretically totally separate things. So when someone like Miguel Sano, who's like this insane power hitter, also just happens to be able to throw the ball 98 miles an hour, I'm just oddly fascinated by the fact that these certain athletes have these like completely divergent skill sets, but they sort of come together for this one sport. Take it further. A five-tool player. How in the world anybody can do one of those things at an elite level, much less all five? But at least things, some of them are, are sort of feel kind of related. Some of them, yeah. Like, like the hit to tool, me, the like hit for power tool. And being able to hit seem totally... Right. Seem at least in my mind. Again, as I said, this is sort of some philosophical stuff. Maybe going off track a little bit, but that's what guys like Sano fascinate me for that reason. Granted, he probably should be hitting. He likes him hitting a little better right now. I think he's uh, he hit home run today. Right before we came on the air, he did take out uh, whoever was starting for the Orioles today. Oh, that's good. That's uh, that's a good start because I think he's. Uh, 
his ISO right now is half of what yeah, it was last year. Yeah, it's not year. great. It's not great. I have I have a lot of hope in him to rebound, but you know maybe the pressure of learning a new position is kind of. It certainly that it wouldn't be that you know you hear about stuff like that. It wouldn't shock me if that was that was a fact. This isn't just this is this isn't a third baseman going to first base or vice no. versa. This is a stark difference. A, a big guy too going out to right field, and he's never played out there before. So the Twins have the the um, number one arm strength in baseball this year. Number two is last year's leaders, the Astros. Three and four are the Rockies and Dodgers, and number five. The Chicago White Sox, Matt Meyer's favorite team, the Chicago White Sox. You were the only one who picked them to win the division this year, and now look at them. Yeah, it's exciting for me because I know I picked them on this podcast, so it's actually on yes. record. This wasn't just me saying it, so like I could actually go back and listen to it. Um, it's on every medium now, by the way. I'm going to let you all in on a little secret. The other day I woke up, and Matt texted me, and he said, I got into my elevator, and I went down to the lobby, and there was a man wearing a White Sox cap, and there's not too many of those roaming around Brooklyn, I don't think, so it's a sign. The thing about the White Sox and why I quote-unquote believe in them um, not because I think they're going to run away with the division, realistically, but I do think that they are going to be they are bona fide contenders. And why I picked them is that they had so much dead weight on their roster last year that it was not hard for them to get better in certain places. For example, last year, Kyler Saladino was their primary third baseman, 602 OPS, 68 OPS plus. Tyler Flowers, primary catcher, 652 OPS. Carlos Sanchez, primary second baseman, 595 OPS. So it's not hard to improve on that. So for me, when I saw that they brought in Todd Frazier, huge improvement at third base, no matter, and I think Todd Frazier is probably overrated. He's not even playing that well this year. <laughs> Still huge improvement. Uh, Britt Lowry has been really hot at second base, big upgrade over Carlos yeah. Sanchez. Abasso Garcia has been hitting well in the DH spot, big upgrade over, yeah. over Adam LaRoche. Melky so, Garcia, or Melky Cabrera, excuse me, has been playing so a lot better. To me, that was why I, I, I saw something in them. Um, not to mention the fact that... Um, Salem Quintana is as good of a is right now as good of a one two as there is in baseball and no one's really talking about Quintana it. Quintana is so underrated, I think. Obviously Chris Sale is great. Quintana's underrated. Uh, Matt Latos is incredibly overrated, so that kind of balances that out. And Carlos Rodon is uh, a little bit underperformed, I think. You know, yeah, you look at that slider. I, he was sort of a part of, uh, admittedly part of the reason I thought that they were gonna be a good team this year is I saw him as like a big breakout mm-hmm. candidate. Um, so that hasn't really materialized, but it hasn't affected them yet. I mean I still could see him turning turning a corner. His first couple starts he looked good, the last couple he is most certainly not looked good, but uh, I think the White Sox are here to stay. All right. Well, uh, that, that's going to be – you're happy to have that on record from like two months ago. Before we get to our guest, Caleb Cotham of the Cincinnati Reds, I just want to share a, a tweet I saw from my friend Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs. So the Atlanta Braves, we know that they are not really going to hit the ball that much this year. They're currently on pace for the worst offensive season ever, and they're 7-24. and 24. Okay, understood. Nobody really thought the Braves were going to do much this year. The Philadelphia Phillies are on pace – for the second worst offensive season ever, and they're 19 and 14. <laughs> Think about that. Now, obviously, the Phillies pitching, we've talked about the Phillies pitching a lot, and Nola and Velasquez are not going to go off through them again. But that's fascinating to see just like what a difference that is. It kind of goes back to the conversation about the Royals and clutch and sort of the randomness of it, because I believe you said that the, the Phillies have the best clutch score. Yes. In, in Cl- well, right just a, a quick definition of the clutch score is basically what your performance is over what your regular performance is, right? If you are always hitting 300 and then you hit 300 in the clutch, well, big deal. You're just being you. But if you always hit 300 and then you hit 500 in the clutch, that means you're doing it at the biggest spots, which tend to lead to the most wins in actual real-life ballgames. That's what the Phillies are doing so far. I don't know how much they're going to be able to keep that up, especially if they can't get that offense going. I think we talked about Michael Franco a lot this winter, and he actually hasn't really gotten off to a great start. No, and, but I think there's still, as we've discussed, still a lot of reason to be optimistic about their future, mostly because of the pitching. But Franco, 
uh, a big part of that as well. I, I, I'm still, I'm still, uh, I'm still a believer. Yeah, well, I am too. I think, I think he's gonna, you know, get it back up together. As much as I'd like to get into the uh, amazingly deep play that uh, Ender Inciarte made last night, I think we're out of time. Let's go talk to Caleb Cotham of the Cincinnati Reds. So, Caleb, uh, there's a very interesting article written about you recently by Zach Buchanan in the Cincinnati Inquirer, and uh, it was really about how you kind of started using data over the last couple of years of your career. And this, this quote I pulled from you I, I thought was amazing, which was, if you're not doing at least some of that, you know, referring to technology and data, you're just kind of guessing. And so I'd just like to get a little bit of backstory from you. When did that light kind of come on for you, that there was all this information out there that you could use to improve your game? Um, it it kind of it started with Kyle at Driveline. Um, it went hand-in-hand hand also with the Yankees uh, probably like two or three years ago. Um, they started doing a lot of TrackMan, uh, PitchFX, uh, just kind of evaluations of each guy and what, what you probably could do better or what your stuff profiles to do a little bit better. And they didn't, uh, they didn't give that to us too much. I think they picked and choose what type of data they would give us just not to try to lock anyone up. But that kind of piqued my interest. And then just working with Kyle and – uh, that's that's kind of his expertise is the is the data and what w- what is it, you know what are you actually doing to throw the baseball and I think it made a lot of sense just how my brain works um, it made a lot of sense then just how to how to truly develop something. So for those who don't know, uh, Kyle is, is Kyle Bodie from Driveline Mechanics, uh, who kind of a friend of the show. He's, he's someone who was on here with us in December and uh, based just outside of Seattle. What they do is they kind of have this really data heavy way of training pitchers to stay healthy and throw harder. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, you've been working with them for a couple winters. So how did you originally get hooked up with Kyle? Um, it was, I think, the off season of 2013. I uh, just kind of started following him on Twitter. I can't I can't really recall how I stumbled upon him, just, I think just kind of reading things on Fangraphs, baseball prospectus. And I think I ran across him, him on Hardball Times and kind of, I kind of just started following him, and it was it was super interesting stuff. It wasn't the the standard, you know, pitching information that you're given on a day to day basis. Uh, you know, basically my whole life, and I had a shoulder surgery, and I kind of had a decreased velocity. I, th- I thought there was more there. I thought there was a probably a better way to go about it, and kind of just reached out that off season. Did a, did a little bit that year, and then off season of 14, I uh, I did a little bit more. And then 15 off season, I went up there for a month before the fall league, and that's kind of kind of what really started it. Um, yeah, and ever since then, I'm not, I, I just can't go back uh, so to the, the way it was. You know, one of the things they're really uh, well known for in the industry is uh, using differently weighted baseballs to kind of build up strength and endurance. And I know that there's a lot of players and maybe even some teams who really kind of don't buy into that. So I'm curious the reaction you've gotten from maybe other players, you know, do they think you're crazy? Do they think it's interesting and they want to learn more? How is that kind of working out? Yeah, you're definitely, uh, I don't know, some element you're being that guy. Uh, kind of just sometimes you're the guy in the corner throwing balls against the wall. People are pretty interested in uh, what's going on there. But I think, you know, when you kind of unpack it for guys and what what's the point and, what you're trying to accomplish. I think it, it speaks to a lot of people on, on uh, many different levels, whether that's, hey, I want to throw a little harder, I want to be more efficient, or, you know, just basically I want to recover better. Um, I think that type of program, it doesn't necessarily have to be all velocity. I think uh, one of the biggest things I've noticed is that I just feel better uh, day in, day out. So my my work uh, pregame, my work postgame allows me to train a little bit harder every day at my craft because, 
end of the day, throwing is what I do. And I think if you're boxed into a corner of throwing less, it's kind of one of those weird things you're asked to get better at but do less of. So I, that that never really made sense to me. So I think it's given me given me the freedom to, to train and really work. And I think a lot of guys um, I think a lot of guys feel the same way. So this past winter, you were traded from the Yankees to the Reds. Uh, what did the Reds say? You had to meet all the new training staff and new, new pitching staff and everybody. When you came in and said, you know, this is kind of the training program I'm familiar with. This is what I like to do. Did they have any issue with that? No, they were uh, they were super open open about it. I think I think I know I know why I do it. I think that helps is to know the why as opposed to just hey I throw weighted balls and you know they're like well why do you do it? And if you can't answer that question. Uh, I think you're you're going to run into some issues, but I, I think I'm I'm pretty confident in why I do it, why it helps me. Um, I'm also pretty. I think I'm, I do a pretty good job of you know picking my spots to do it, especially during the season, pitching a lot. I think you you have to manage that workload pretty pretty efficiently to get better. Also, you know, you, your goal is to pitch when it's in the game and you want, you want to be ready to do that. So uh, it's just towing that line of not uh, detracting from actually pitching in games, but also getting better, but they've, they've been super open. It's been really, really fun. So you've been a part of two major league organizations, the Yankees and the Reds. What are the differences in those organizations just in the sense of, you know, what kind of data they might provide you before you go out and pitch on the other team? Um, It's pretty, pretty much the same. Uh, you know, the stock uh, scouting reports just, um, this guy, you know, the holes or how you'd like to pitch this guy. And I think both, both, both organizations, especially out of the bullpen, it's kind of, it's kind of beat into you that, you know, default always into, into what you do well, as opposed to what the hitters holes are. I think that was pretty consistent between the two organizations. Kind of, if you have a good slider, throw your slider. If the guy, you know, this guy report says he hits sliders well, then, you know, you got to you know, just trust your stuff kind of. Um, not too much difference. They're both both very storied uh, organizations, so it's been uh, it's been pretty pretty similar. Uh, Yankees, I mean, a little bit more media involved. That's about the only difference. When you were with the Yankees last year, uh, from what I read, they they kind of came to you and asked you to throw more curveballs because uh, you have a good fastball and slider, but the velocity difference maybe isn't as as much as you'd like it, and the curveball kind of changes the eye level and everything. What kind of conversation was that? Was that pretty easy? They're just saying we want you to do this, or was there is there interesting data to back it up on your end? Well, they they kind of just said uh, that uh, kind of just the stock. Hey, you need something a little slower to make you know hitters respect that that speed difference. And even if it's just hey, the difference in hey he has a curveball and maybe hey he will throw his curveball. Uh, I think just putting that in the hitter's mind, getting that in a scouting report, uh, makes the other stuff play up a little bit. It's just the fact that they looked at the numbers, the the TrackMan numbers, and said you know we we think the way you spin it. Uh, the way it moves, that it, it will be a good pitch. It's just getting to the point where you trust it and kind of know how to use it. Um, kind of the same thing the Reds told me, that that uh, it profiles to be a, a pretty good pitch for me and just throw it more. I'm glad you brought up uh, TrackMan and Spin because I, I looked at your numbers this morning for your curveball, and uh, last year you had above-average spin on it. It was about uh, 2450 RPMs, and this year it's gone up quite a bit, almost 2670. So uh, I'm really curious on that. What kind of work do you put into kind of increased spin? Is it a different grip, different arm action? Um, 
it kind of when I went to driveline this past off season, we sat down, uh, me, Kyle, and uh, a couple other guys there, and just kind of what we tried to decide, like, what would make that pitch um, just be better. So it was a multi-factor, just drills to maintain wrist angles and how, as opposed to over-supinating the curveball and kind of letting it roll out of your hand, kind of driving the pitch in more of a pronation-type uh, release pattern. That, coupled with some high-speed uh, high speed looks at what the curveball is doing out of the hand with the Edgertronic camera, which that's that's that camera shows you exactly <clears throat> kind of the spin axis and spin direction you're creating out of your hand. So you can kind of see if it's, if it's stable out of the hand or not stable. So that was basically the one thing we tried to accomplish is throw the same pitch, but what do we have to do to get it to stabilize right out of the hand so the spin becomes more usable, basically creating a more stable spin axis right out of the hand. And, you know, it's getting better. That's kind of what we're working on every day. And uh, I think it's 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 gotten a little bit better. One of your teammates uh, in Cincinnati this year, Dan Straley, who's uh, had a pretty decent start to the season, is also a driveline client. Uh, so I assume you must have known him a little bit, and it must be nice to have a little bit of a kind of driveline corner in the clubhouse to work together. Yeah, I actually didn't. I, I knew he was working with Kyle at driveline, but I, I, you know, basically just knew him from afar. And when he came, uh, kind of, it was pretty awesome because you can kind of go to work with someone who, who's kind of in the same realm as you are mentally about how to go about getting better so it's been pretty fun like we play catch together most days I know he's a starter now but um yeah it's it's always cool to have someone you can kind of go to work with rather than being the lone wolf uh in a sense but yeah I mean his results speak speak loads to just kind of the process and and really understanding how to pitch and you know it's, it's been really fun uh, just going back to your curveball for a second, I, I believe I read in that article that you kind of settled on Corey Kluber as a model for the curveball, and that's obviously a great model to have because he's a really elite pitcher. What do you do to kind of emulate that? Is it Do you change your mechanics? Is it, is it trying to change your velocity to match his or just kind of taking what what you think works best for him and matching it to your own skills? Yeah, I think, uh, well, step one was uh, Trevor Bauer. He had a He had a high-speed video of his, of him throwing his breaking ball in, uh, I think, a bullpen setting. And just you can really see how he's spinning the ball out of the hand, and it's honestly very different than what you would think what it would look like. Um, you watch it on TV, and I think the camera angles will make certain curveballs look more 12 to 6 than they actually are. So when you look at his, his pitch FX trackman numbers on how his ball's moving, it's, a, it's pretty much just a p- hard power slurve. And I think how that tied into me is it released that monkey of trying to make a pitch 12-6 when maybe your slot or how you want to throw the baseball doesn't necessarily create that. Like I'm not – I don't have a slot or hand path of a Kershaw. So I think if I have – if I'm using my slot and trying to make a 12-6, there's a disconnect between how I actually would spin the ball the best. So seeing that, it almost opens the door to be like, okay, if that pitch is very good – that's okay. Like a, a slurve is fine. Let's maybe that's a a better release pattern of how to throw it. So it's kind of just that started the process, and it turns out that just kind of throwing it very hard and trying to spin it very hard and have the idea of a slurve in mind 
works better for how I throw the baseball, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Um, so just two more questions for you, Cable, and we'll let you go. Yeah. One is I saw on Twitter recently that you, know, you tweeted out that you were reading uh, Jeff Passing to the Arm, which is a big book coming out now that's all about you know, Tommy John surgery and the uh, you know, arm health and everything. What were your takeaways on what to do or what not to do necessarily to, to keep your elbow healthy? Um, well, I haven't finished it, but uh, I think I think it's 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 just got to be a different. Uh, I think you really got to train at it. I think a lot of pro- I think the problems that a lot of pitchers run into is that the training gap between uh, what intensity we train at all off season, every day in catch, uh, long toss is drastically different than what we're asked to do in a game and I think the more you can responsibly bridge that gap between how you train and how you're asked to compete I think your body will know uh, what that speed feels like more so I mean it's not go out there and throw the ball as hard as you can every day but it's got to be somewhere in the middle and I think uh, I think just the the idea of playing it safe save your bullets you know nice and easy catch, nice and easy bullpen just creates such a large gap between uh, how you're asked to throw the baseball in a major league game that if you can bridge that gap, I think your body will respond better day in and day out. I mean, no one has the answer, but I don't think, personally, in my opinion, doing less is the answer. Uh, Final question, and I have to ask, what was more shocking to you this winter when you found out that you've been traded or when you found out that you've been traded for Aroldis Chapman of all people? Well, uh, it's definitely a shot getting traded, and um, Chapman's obviously just, you know, with all the drive-on stuff, he's probably one of the most elite throwers in history. So it's it's a uh, he's someone that I love to watch. Uh, he's someone that's very electric, and you know, it's it was a uh, it was an honor to be in that mix. But yeah, I mean, being one of my favorite pitchers to watch, it was pretty pretty cool. Um, you know, I was just happy for the opportunity and to be considered and have someone, you know, find some value in what I do. Awesome. Uh, Caleb Cotton from Cincinnati Reds, really appreciate your time. Thanks so much. This has been the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello. Uh, thanks, Caleb Cotton, and catch us next week.